0: So the Reb Sheer Zalman, known as the Alter Rebbe, was one of the most brilliant Jewish scholars and one of the most influential Jewish leaders um, in recent Jewish history, um, perhaps in all of Jewish history. So he was born on the 18th of the month of Elul in the year Hebrew year 5505, or Kaf Kof Hei, which is the equivalent of September 4th, 1745. He was born in a tiny village in Belarus, um, in eastern Belarus, near the Belarus, what today would be the, Belarus, the Belarusian border, um, in a small, t- very tiny village called Lyozna, where his father, whose name was Baruch, was a wealthy Jewish fa- farmer. So at a very, very young age, this Schneer Zalman was recognized as a young prodigy, As a genius, Um, he was extremely smart. Um, He was well. He studied Torah at a very young age. Was well versed in Torah. Um, He also studied sciences, mathematics, um, and was well versed in those as well. Um, And as when when he was very young, when he was only nine years old, his father wanted him to study with a great sage. So he brought him to the town of Lubavitch. Lubavitch would later be associated with the Chabad movement because the leaders of the Chabad movement. Um, Rabbi Shneer's Alman's son, later moved to that town, but he was born to this nearby town of Lubavitch, where um, he was taught by the rabbi there, who was a very very well-known scholar, Rabbi Sachar Ber. Then later, as he got older, he went to um, the nearby big city, which is still there today um, in eastern Belarus, called Vitebsk, and uh, there in that big city, his uncle, whose name was Yosef Yitzchak, was um, the leader of the great yeshiva in that city, and he studied in that yeshiva for a number of years. As a teenager, as was common back then, um, he got married to Sterna, Rebitson Sterna, who was the daughter of Yehuda Lab and Bela Segal, who were a very um, rich, wealthy family in living there in Bitebsk, and he continued his studies there, supported by his wealthy father-in-law. Now his father Rabbaruch, his uncle Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, as well his his teacher um, Yisachar Ber in Lubavitch, were all part of what was then the fledgling Hasidic movement. Hasidism was a movement that had been started by Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Um, Just a couple years, just a couple years earlier, um, the year that we usually give for the founding of Hasidism is 1734. Um, and so it was just a couple years before his birth, and so it was a very, very small movement just starting at the time, Um, but his father was a member of that movement, was part of that movement, as was his uncle, as was his teacher, Rabbi Yusuf Herber. They were all part of that Hasidic movement. However, Ushner Zaman was unaware of their involvement in the Hasidic movement. The center of the Hasidic movement at the time was somewhat far away. It was in Western Ukraine, in an area called Podolia, um, in the, the Balshemto lived in a town called Mezhabuzh, which is still there today in Western Ukraine. Um, and so it was somewhat far, far from where they lived in Eastern Belarus. And, um, and there was a lot of opposition at the time to the Hasidic movement. A lot of people questioned its motives, whether it's legitimate Judaism. And so, as a result, many, particularly in places where, where the movement had not yet really spread, kept their involvement quiet. They didn't make it public. And so, therefore, it wasn't publicly known that um, Rebbe Baruch, uh, Reb, the author Rebbe's father, or uncle, Yosef Yitzchak, or teacher, Rebbe Sacherber, were actually members of this movement. And the Baal Shem had actually instructed um, Rebbe Schneider Zalman's father, Rebbe not to share his involvement with the Hasidic movement with his son at all, to keep it secret, saying that his son will one day join this movement on his own. So the passed Shem Tov passed, in, um, passed away in, nine, in 1760 um, on a festival of Shavuot in 1760, um, when Reb Shneir would have been 15 years old. He was probably unaware of it at the time. He um, after his death, the movement was led by Rebdo Bear, known as the Maggid of Mezrich. He lived in a town called Mezrich, also in western Ukraine, and um, the movement was led by Rebdo Bear. When Reb Shnerzaman was 18, he was already married at the time, um, it was common for people to, yeah, for um, especially among wealthier families, to marry in their teens. Um, uh, Reb Shnerzaman decided to travel to a great teacher, and it was very common for young scholars after their marriage to go away for a year or two, then you couldn't fly and come right back to go away for a year or two to study in a great yeshiva. And so he wanted to study with a, with a great teacher. At the time, he deliberated between going to two great Jewish centers that were well-known by then. One was Vilna, Vilna is the great, today the capital of Lithuania. Then it was one of the largest Jewish cities in Europe. And um, in Vilna, there was at the time the there was Reb Eliyahu, who was known as the Gaon. He's often referred to as the Vilna Gaon or the Gaon Gaon in Hebrew is genius. Um, the Gaon was one of the greatest Jewish scholars of all time. Um, and he um, and he had many followers, many students that studied with him in Vilna. And Shezaman considered going to Vilna to study with under the Gaon, but then he, he deliberated between that or going to Mizrich. Where Rabdo Bear, the Magad of Mizrich and successor of the Baal Shem Tov, led the Hasidic movement. And so he reasoned that in Vilna, he would be taught to further his studies, something that he thought he felt pretty advanced in already. But in Misrich he would be taught how to pray and how to connect to God. And so he felt he didn't know enough of that yet. And he therefore chose on his own, not knowing that his father was already connected to the Hasidic movement, he chose to go to. Mizrich. So he traveled there. It was very, very far away. It's a it's a couple hundred mile trek, um, and then without cars or planes or trains, um, he went um, in horse and wagon. It was it's, it's a long journey. Uh, he came to Mizrich, and over there he was one of the. He was only eighteen years old. There were many senior students um, of the Maggid of Mizrich. At the time, he was one of the youngest students, but he quickly became the favorite student of the Magad who chose him to who who asked him to be his own son's study partner. The Maggid's son was called Reb Avraham, and um, the Alter became the study partner of Reb Avraham. And together, the Magid of Mizrich would teach just the two of them privately. Uh, would teach them his Hasidic teachings. So at the time, he spent 18 months in the town of Mizrich studying the teachings of Kabbalah, of the Hasidic teachings, and befo- before finally returning home. And when he returned home, he was a Hasid. He considers him, himself part of the Hasidic movement and really a devoted student of the Magid of Mizrich. And so he then continued traveling regularly to Mizrich um, for the next 10 years until the passing of his teacher. In 1772. And in December 1772, the Maggid um, died, and Rabshir Zahman happened to be there at the time. And he was there for about 10 years until he went back and forth for those 10 years. Now, after the death of the Maggid of Mizrich, the Maggid of Mizrich had dozens of um, very bright and very saintly um, students. Um, who were each one was very unique in their own right. And so after his death in 1772, his students scattered across Eastern and Central Europe, most of them going back to the regions that they came from because they had come from all over Europe, and each established their own Hasidic movement, essentially leading the Hasidic movement within their own region, within their own area. The Alter Reber of Schneir Zalman He lived, as we said, in Belarus. Belarus, along with Lithuania and Latvia um, and parts of Northern Ukraine, were known in in Yiddish as Lita. People from there were called Litvish or Litvaks, um, as opposed to Jews from other areas, from Poland or Western Ukraine, who were called Polish, um, Polish, or from um, other parts of Western Ukraine, Galiziana, and Galicia, and uh, Hungarian were called Ingarisha. So Jews from Belarus and Lithuania were called Lita, that was known as Lita. So Lita was the region where Rupshnir Zalman was from. And so he went back, he was still fairly young, Um, he was still fairly young at the time, not yet 30. And so the Hasidic leader at the time in Lita was one of the older students of the Magid of Mezrich, Mendel of Vitebsk. He had been a senior student of the Maggid, and all of the students of the Maggid who were from Lita, from Belarus, Lithuania, recognized Mendel of Vitebsk as the leader of the Hasidic movement within Lita, within Lithuania. However, in Lita, in Lithuania, Belarus, Hasidism came under a lot of opposition. While it spread very, very quickly in Poland, in Ukraine, in um, Hungary, Romania, but in um, in Lithuania and Belarus, Hasidic came under a lot more le- opposition. And that was mostly led by the Vilna Gaon, by the Gaon in Vilna. And so as a result of this opposition, um, Hasidic, Hasidic followers in Lita were often persecuted. Um, people would have want to do business with them. They were often um, sent out of the synagogue, not allowed in the synagogue, and persecuted in other ways. And as a result of that, um, in 1777, um, five years after the passing of the Margaret of Misrich, Rabbi Menachem Mendel um, of Vitebsk decided to move from Lita, and he decided to go to the Holy Land, the Land of Israel. This was the first, while there were many Sephardic Jews already living in Israel at the time, and there were a handful of Ashkenazic Jews. This was the first major Ashkenazic aliyah, or movement to the land of, to the land of Israel. So Rabbi Nachah Mendel, um, along with some of the other students of the Maggid of Mizritch, and hundreds of um, followers together traveled to, um, traveled to the land of Israel, where they settled in Sfat, and in Tiberias, in northern Israel, for various reasons, they were unable to settle in Jerusalem at the time, and so they settled in Svat and Tiberias, and they began what became the Ashkenazic community um, in the land of Israel. So, following the departure of um, Reb Menachem Mendel, who had been the leader of Chassidim in Lita, Rabbanach Zalman, the Alter-Rebbe, as he's known, moved back. We had been living in Vitebsk, where his wife was from. He moved back to his hometown, a small village called Liazna, where, and from there he led the Hasidic movement in Lita. He became the leader of Hasidism, Hasidim in that whole region, in Lithuania, Belarus, Latvia. And there in, Lia, in, in Liazna, he established a large yeshiva and he had many followers that would come from all over, students, admirers, people came to hear his teachings, and people came to hear his advice. Reb Sheer Zalman was quickly, though though still very young, he was quickly recognized as one of the greatest Torah scholars and Kabbalists of his time, and a tzaddik, a saintly individual. So the Hasidic movement that had been founded by the Baal Shem Tov, by Reb Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, was about rebuilding the connection between God and creation, between God and people. While people were Jews, were following Judaism, following the Torah, there was a lot lacking within the emotional connection between us and God, between the in the feeling of our relationship and understanding of our relationship between us and God. What the Baal Shem explained. He didn't really take it, create any new ideas. But what he did is he took some of the powerful teachings in Kabbalah, um, among them that our world does not stand independent of God, but is a part of God. In the words of the Zohar, let atar panui there is no place without God within it. God is everywhere. We are just a part of the infinite of God. Um, God's constant involvement in every single detail within creation, the belief that our souls are essentially a part of God or agents of God here on earth, here to make a difference, Um, the the belief that a mitzvah, commandment, is an opportunity to connect with the infinite, since we finite creatures have no way to connect with the infinite other than when the infinite tells us to do something and we listen to him, that's our greatest connection. So these are just some of the many teachings of Kabbalah that had been taught in Kabbalah for many years, for since the beginning of Judaism, and can be found in the Zohar and other important Kabbalistic works. But most people didn't study Kabbalah; it's a very, very difficult subject. Um, even those that did study it um, were not. It wasn't widely the the ideas were not widely known among Jews, and were not widely shared, were not widely experienced. And so what the Baal Shem Tov did is he brought these ideas, the connection between creation and creator, how we're really just part of the creator. God is not something else out there, but really a part. Of, we are just a part of him. We're an extension of the creator. God is invested in every single detail in creation. Each one of us are, have a soul, which is a part of God. These ideas, what the Baal Shem Tov did is he popularized them. He explained them to lay people, to, to, to everyone, so that everyone can understand them, everyone can be aware of them, and everyone can live by them, everyone can connect with God, we can pray and develop a love and appreciation for God, we can live in awe of God's greatness and infinity, and so the, what the Baal Shem Tov did is he really popularized these ideas, allowing us to really appreciate and live by these ideas. And so as a result, the Hasidic movement grew very, very quickly from when the Baal Shem founded it in 1734 in Western Ukraine. It grew within a few decades. It spread across Eastern Europe, and within a couple decades, majority of European Jews um, were affiliated with this new Hasidic movement. So the Alter Rebbe, took one who was a student of the, the successor of the Baal Shem um, the Maghra of Rich, the author Eber Rabbi Shneir Zalman developed a way, while the Baal Shem Tov had taught these teachings, the Baal Shem Tov taught them as very simple, um, short teachings. In very, If you read the Baal Shem Tov's books, they're very, very short, very, very simple, kind of things that you would find in a self-help book, but only speaking about spirituality and speaking about God, something that anybody can easily relate to, anybody can easily see. However, the deeper understanding of why we believe that, why do we believe that we are just an extension of God? Why do we believe that God is invested in every single detail within creation? Why do we believe that every single person has a soul, which is an extension of the creator, which is a part of the creator? Why do we believe that everybody within them has a good soul and a bad soul? The why, where does this come from? What's the understanding behind it? What's the theory, the philosophy behind it? The Baal Shem Tov did not bother to explain. That was all explained in detail in works of Kabbalah, but the Baal Shem Tov himself never really explained that. The Alter Rebbe developed a philosophy or a system to take these complex Kabbalistic concepts, that were very, very hard to understand to the average person, unless you are a great Kabbalist, and explain them in simpler words. Explain them in a way that any person who puts their mind to it and studies it is able to understand these Kabbalistic teachings, understand the why, understand the deeper meaning behind it. And so he developed a way to explain these complex Kabbalistic explanations that served as the basis of the Hasidic movement to explain them in simple terms or in ways that anybody can study and understand the philosophy behind it. Now, Hasidic teachings were not only inspirational ideas to live by, but more of a philosophy. It was a not only a more spiritual meaning of life, but now was an elaborate philosophy with a relatable theory that explained why it's like that, why we believe that to be true. So the most important work of the Alter Rebbe, of Rip Schneer Zalman, was the book called Tanya. Tanya is the first comprehensive book of Chassidism. while there were other books of short teachings of of Hasidus, Tanya was the first comprehensive book, kind of written as an, in an organized, structured way um, to be able to understand Hasidic ideas. Tanya has a number of different sections. The first section, the largest, focuses on personal development, focuses on the battle within each person between a godly soul and an animal soul that every single person has. Its second part speaks about God's interaction with creation, how we are just an extension of the Creator, and we are, and God is invested in every single detail within creation. And so, the Tanya really is the most important book um, within Chsidism within that explains these ideas in a way that everybody can understand them. And I know we've spoken about the Tanya before, I'm hoping to do a class shortly. We will speak about just focused on the book of Tanya and definitely encourage those who have not yet studied it. Definitely um, there are today many, many um, books that explain the Tanya as well as audio and video classes. You can study the Tanya and I would definitely encourage if you haven't yet done so for you to study it. So I'm sorry, the Tanya, it was like the whole thing was written by this author, Rebbe? Yes. Okay, so he wrote the whole book. You wrote the book, yes? Okay, thank you. So, the uh, Tanya was actually published in seventeen. Uh, Tanya was published in seventeen ninety six. The Tanya, and he he had a number of other works, teachings, uh, really spread the teachings of Hasidus, and the Alter Rebbe really became um, the prominent leader, um, Hasidic leader. The he was the leader of um, Hasidism in Lita, in Lithuania, Belarus and uh, one of the most prominent Jewish leaders of his day. Now, in addition to being a great Kabbalist and the main philosopher of the, the founding philosopher, if you will, of the ideas behind the Hasidic movement, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shner Zalman, was also a unique Torah scholar. His teacher, the Maggot of Mizrich, recognized his unique scholarship, his knowledge, his, the depth of his understanding, of Torah knowledge, and he instructed him to write a Shulchan Aruch, or a code of law, that would incorporate all of Jewish law until that day. And a number of similar codes have been written over our history, um, because Jewish law evolves as Jewish life evolves. Um, New issues come up, new issues are debated, um, resolutions are, we come to resolutions or consensus are reached, sometimes they're not. And so um, there are many different books that have been written over the years um, of comprehensive codes of Jewish law. So the Al Rebbe wrote a book which he published, known as Shochan Aruch Harav, um, and it became um, today and today remains today one of the most important books of Jewish law. One of the most important, at least for the last couple hundred years. Um, he also was a very much an innovator in Jewish law, in halacha. Um, And he innovated a number of different ways. Um, Now, when we say innovation, it doesn't mean create new laws, because the laws are based on the Torah. But it's about figuring out workarounds for laws, or figuring out the best way to follow certain commandments. Um, Among other things, um, slaughter knives at the time, uh, they're called in Hebrew halafim, that were used for ritual slaughter were mostly made of iron. Um, steel had was widely in use by this time, and um, the Al-Tarebi um, helped encourage something that already his teacher, the Magad of rich had, uh, uh, had tried to do, um, to switch the knives from iron to steel, which worked a lot better. Um, it required a little bit of a different sharpening system, the way we sharpen the knives um, for, ritual slaughter, they have to be perfectly sharp, uh, extremely sharp and perfectly smooth so you could run your nail over it without feeling any bumps. Um, so it's somewhat of a complex system. So um, he developed a new sharpening system to sharpen steel, um, steel knives, and, uh, d- and encourage the switch, which um, today is widely accepted. He also built a new system for building mikvahs. Mikvahs have to be built um, from rainwater that flowed na- on its own into the mikvah. Um, keeping mikvahs hot was a challenge, um, and so he built a new system for min, uh, mikvahs. He also refined the um, the script that was used for to write Torah scrolls or tefillin and mezuzahs. Over the years some, some slight variations have crept up in the script between different communities or different scribes between the Torah scripts, so he took the different variations and um, created um, and developed from the different variations uh, the most ideal script to write um, Torah, to write Torah at our Mezuzis. He also refined the wording of our prayers. At the time, the prayer books had dozens of different variations that had cropped up between different communities um, over the years. And uh, Sparta communities, Ashkenazi communities, um, Kabbalistic teachings had been added into the prayer books um, and the like. And so he went through the prayer book and um, choosing from dozens of different prayer variations and creating the prayer that would best fit with Jewish law, halacha, as well as Kabbalah. So those are some of his halachic innovations and um, he had made a very big impact on the Jewish legal world or the Torah, uh, a Torah study as well. So in 1797, for some years, as the Hasidic movement grew from its founding in 1734 by the Baal Shem Tov, um, there had been some friction um, with many Jewish leaders questioning the Hasidic movement. They were afraid. Um, they were afraid that perhaps um, the Hasidic movement was deviating from Jewish teachings, from Jewish law, from Halacha. Um, around that time, there had been other cults or groups that, kind of, that did deviate from Judaism, uh, most notable followers of the false messiah Shabtai Tzvi, um, whom we spoke about a couple weeks ago, and uh, others. So there were different groups that had deviated away from Judaism, um, changing Jewish laws and changing the rules. And so there was a fear that this new movement was also a new cult, deviating away from Judaism. And so, as a result, when it first began, there was some um, friction with um, many Jewish leaders rejecting the movement at first. And it took some time, it continued to gain popularity, um, even among Jewish leaders and Jewish scholars and rabbis, and it took some time for it to become widely accepted as um, as a valid expression of Judaism. And so, while Um, Within a couple decades, it became widely accepted within most of Europe um, to the point that majority of Jews in most of Europe were affiliated with the Hasidic movement. In Lita, Lithuania, which is again the Lithuania-Belarus area, um, the Hasidic movement faced a lot more friction, Um, and that was partly because um, Lithuania was more was a center of Jewish scholarship at the time, It's the main Jewish scholars. But mostly because the Vilna Gaon, the the great Gaon who lived in Vilna at the time and recognized at the time as the outstanding Jewish scholar of his day, himself was very suspicious of the movement and himself was opposed to the Hasidic movement. And so as a result, um, there was a lot of friction within Lita um, for many years. Um, And the the, the friction between Hasidim and non-Hasidim or they were referred to usually as mitnagdim misnagdim those that were against citizen um that the the battles between them went up and down over the years um in 1797 the dispute between Hasidim and their opponents reemerged in Lita particularly in the city of Vilna um it was somewhat connected with other political fights going on within the Jewish community in Vilna, which um, was, again, the largest Jewish community of its day in Eastern Europe, um, but also had a long history of um, bitter political battles between different factions of the Jewish community within Vilna. And that some of those political battles spilled over into, since some of the people on certain sides were affiliated with the Hasidic movement, um, it spilled over with time into a... um, another battle between Chassidim and their opponents. And so as a result, the Jewish community in Vilna, led by the Vilna Gaon, excommunicated all Chassidim and the Khsidic movements, um, forbidding all connection and relationship with them, um, forbidding one to do any business with them or connecting with them in any way. Um, it was somewhat ineffective given that majority of Jews in Europe and, um, a significant minority of Jews within Lita were already affiliated with the Hasidic movement. However, as a result, a year later in 1798, some Jews lodged a complaint with the Tsarist government based in St. Petersburg, um, that the Hasidic movement was advocating for a revolution to overthrow the Tsarist government. Now, while it sounds a little strange that the Tsars who were paranoid, Um, would even be concerned about some religious movement. Um, To put in a little perspective, this was less than a decade after the French Revolution. The French Revolution had shocked all monarchs in Europe. They were all afraid that they were next. And um, monarchs across Europe took a very, very strong stand on any sign of any form of, um, of anything that, they suspected may um, question their leadership or question the, um, or, or could be fomenting a revolution. Uh, now the French Revolution very much had been fomented by various social movements within France. There'd been various social movements that had built um, in France over the, and Western Europe over the um, 18th century that had led to the French Revolution. And so, um, Monarchs across Europe were very afraid of new social movements. And so they therefore eyed any new social movement with suspicion. They had already seen the Hasidic movement as a movement with suspicion. Um, the um, Jews who had accused the Hasidic movement before the Tsar as being a cover for a revolution um, brought all sorts of evidence for their claim. Among them, um, there had been, as we mentioned earlier, a large group of Hasidim, led by Rabbi Nachman had gone up to the Promised Land um, to, to Israel and settled in Israel. They were supported by Jews in Europe. Jews in Europe would support them and um, collect funds and send funds to um, and send funds to, um, to the land of Israel. Russia at the time was in was um, was at war with the Ottoman Empire. Which, was, uh, which controlled the land of Israel. And so therefore they were claiming that they were secretly sending funds to the Ottoman Sultan rather than the land of Israel. Among their other claims was that um, Hasidism um, a lot, took a lot of its teachings from Kabbalah and really developed Kabbalah a lot. And in Kabbalah that of the 10 sefirot, the lowest of the 10 is malchut royalty. So they believe that they, they're not big fans of the monarchy because they put monarchy at the very bottom of their list of sefirot. Those are among a, a number of other claims that they wrote um, in their original complaint against citizen. Um, against so anyway, as a result of this complaint, as a result of this complaint the, um, Al, the, in October of 1798, the Alta Rebbe, or Alman, was arrested Along with dozens of other Hasidic leaders across the Russian Empire, Um, and the Alter Rebbe, um, seen by the opponents in Lita and by the Tsarist government as the leader of the Hasidic movement, was brought to St. Petersburg um, to answer and put in prison there and interrogated to try to figure out for them to try to figure out um, what this movement, what this Hasidic movement was about. Um, Interestingly, the file of of the complaints and the interrogations and everything have, since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, a lot of earlier czarist files are now made public, and um, now that file is also publicly available, um, and it's original Russian, and it's translated, um, and you can see all the details of exactly what happened. So anyway, the al was interrogated um, there in St. Petersburg by, different leaders from the government, from the Senate, the uh, Russian Senate, um, who tried the Hasidic movement, and uh, he managed to convince them that the Hasidic movement was non-political. It was a solely religious movement. They were sending la- money to poor Jews in Israel, not to the Sultan. The Sphera of Mahut is at the bottom because it's God's reign over creation but has nothing to do with the monarch or the czar, and so therefore the czar shouldn't take it personal. Um, and uh, so on, he went through all the different complaints one by one, um, answering each and every one. So on the 19th of Kislev of that year, December of that year, he was released after 53 days in prison. And later the czarist government officially sanctioned, it was somewhat of a process, but officially, they, uh, they officially sanctioned the Hasidic movement which allowed it to, until then, it hadn't been officially recognized by the Tsarist government, but now was officially allowed to grow. The Altarebi returned um, back home. He moved from the small village of Liuzna, which he had by now, his movement had long outgrown. Um, He would have thousands of of visitors, or tens of thousands of visitors in a village of only a couple hundred people. And so he had outgrown that village. And so he moved to a larger city called Liadi, and he worked to expand the, mo- the movement and further develop Hasidic teachings. So, while by the early 1800s, in 1802, already the or 1803, um, the Hasidic movement was officially sanctioned by the Tsarist government, and the Hasidic uh, the battle um, with Hasidic opponents had been won. Uh, Most Jews in Europe were now chassidim. In Lithuania, it was by now about a 50-50, and um, there was a truce, which essentially between chassidim and non-chassidim, and um, essentially that truce continued since, where uh, we learned to get along with each other, um, chassidim and non-chassidim, even if we had disagreements um, on particular approaches to um, Jewish worship. Um, and, uh, and that's thankfully continued since. However, at the same time, the Alter Rebbe now faced after that a challenge from some of his colleagues, some of the students of the Maggid of Mizrach. When he had published the Tanya, the Book of Tanya, which is a structured philosophy of the Hasidic movement, it was now available for everyone to study. Anybody can not only hear the basic Hasidic concepts, that the Baal Shem Tov and the of Mizrich had taught and spread, but there was now a whole philosophy, accessible philosophy that anybody can read, anybody can study, and anyone can learn about the Kabbalistic philosophy that uh, is behind the important teachings of the Hasidism, of the Hasidic movement. Now, some of his colleagues were uncomfortable that he had built a philosophy explaining the Hasidic movement. Now, they claimed that the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, and the Maggid of Mizrich who had taught these teachings, themselves great Kabbalists, and drawn their teachings from Kabbalah but had no intention of developing a philosophy to explain their teachings. Had no intention of creating a philosophy that would be available to all to explain those teachings. And therefore, they said that this, the Alter Rebbe's move to explain it and make it accessible so that everyone can understand it and understand the philosophy behind the Hasidism was not the intention of the original Hasidic movement. Um, and so they were upset about that. And um, they called the this new philosophy, that, or the philosophy that the Alter Rebbe had developed, they called it by the, by the name Chabad. Chabad is an acronym used extensively in Kabbalah, to refer to the first three sefirot, which are intellectual sefirot of chachma, bina, da'at, or wisdom, knowledge, understanding. And uh, those are the intellectual sefirot, and the idea was that he was creating, by publicizing the philosophy, he was creating a more intellectual version of chassidism that had never been intended by its founders. Now, Many of the Alter Rebbe's colleagues defended him, um, and that, and he himself defended himself. That while the Balshemtov and the Magid themselves had not publicly shared the philosophy behind Chassidism, however, the Magid had taught the Alter Rebbe in private. Um, he had t- learned privately with the Magid of Mizrich. Um, in a way that the other students had not, and he had been taught this philosophy, and the Al-Turabi claimed that his teacher instructed him to share it and publicize it, as he indeed did later, and he was doing it on the instructions of his teacher. It was not something that he was doing on his own, and it was also not something that he had, uh, it was not something that he had just developed on his own from Kabbalah, but he, was, he had based it on the teachings that his teacher had taught him privately. But as a result of this um, disagreement, there was a split within the Hasidic movement, where the Alter Rebbe and some of his colleagues became affiliated with what was known as the Chabad stream within the Hasidic movement, the intellectual stream that explained and developed the philosophy in addition to following the actual teachings of Hasidism, but also studied and developed the philosophy behind it. And what was known as the Chagat, or the non-Chabad stream of citizen which did not focus on the philosophy at all, didn't really study the philosophy, and just studied the kind of basic lay person teachings that were taught originally by the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid of mizrach So that's, in short, how the Alter Rebbe founded what today is known as the Chabad Movement, it's the, a branch of the Hasidic movement, or a spin-off, if you will, of the Hasidic movement, that, um, that focuses on the philosophy behind the Hasidism, not just teaching the Hasidism, but also trying to understand the philosophy behind it, the, Kabbal- the Kabbalistic teachings that underpin um, the movement. Um, today, there are Hasidim that are both associated with Chabad, as well as many Hasidic groups that are not associated with the Chabad, stream within the Hasidic movement. so the author continued to the author continued of Zalman continued to lead the Hasidic movement um, until uh, in, until 1812 and it continued to grow under his leadership um, especially once it became officially legal and was sanctioned by the government um then they no longer had trouble from local officials which who had been giving them trouble until then and so um, it continued to grow um until 1812. in 1812 um there was uh in 1812 the um napoleon invaded the french um at the time napoleon was the emperor invaded the russian empire had already kept already controlled much of europe um, reorganized much of europe and uh, in 1812, um, the Napoleon invaded the Russian Empire um, in the effort to essentially cement his control over all of Europe. Now, the area where most of the battles between the Russian between the Russians and the French, or the French's Grand Armée, I think he called it, um, was mostly in an area called the Pale of Settlement. The Pale of Settlement is an area that was once part of the Kingdom of Poland, or the Commonwealth of Poland, um, until the late 1600s, and Jews had settled there, um, had come mostly from Central Europe um, due to persecution and expulsion from other places, had moved to the Kingdom of Poland, where Jews had been treated pretty well. Um, In the late 1600s and throughout the 1700s, um, the Kingdom of Poland was gradually split up between different powers between Prussia, between the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, between, and much of it ended up in the Russian Empire. Now, Jews, but prior, to the, um, prior to the Russian Empire in, uh, swallowing the Poland, um, Jews had not been allowed to live in Russia. Um, it was one of a number of Christian countries where Jews were not allowed to live. Uh, when they swallowed up the Kingdom of Poland, they incorporated these large areas that had very large Jewish communities. Including cities where Jews were a majority, and um, and so as a, and so the Russians though did not want Jews to move into into what had been original Russia, and so they created the Pale of Settlement. Jews were only allowed to live in certain areas, the areas that had been part of Poland, but they weren't allowed to move beyond those areas. And so um, so the. So, uh, so the war between Poland and uh, between uh, between the French and the Russians mostly took place in the Pale of Settlement in areas that were where Ju- there were very, very large Jewish populations. Um, I should mention, I, one thing I didn't mention earlier, which I should mention about the Altarebi. in addition to his great religious leadership, he was also a, um, as a leader of Jews, he also took care of Jews financially and took care of them um, for care of their material needs as well. Um, there was around the in earlier, a little bit earlier, um, the czars had captured um, Southern Ukraine from what, what was then under the controls of the Tartars. Um, they uh, captured Southern Ukraine, so what well, today is Southern Russia, um, the um, Caucasus region um, had been captured by the czars and uh, they weren't very densely inhabited but the people living there were mostly Tartars, a lot of Muslims at the time. And the Tsars the w- um, went on a campaign to Russify or move Russians into that region, into the region, the, the Don region, the Dnieper region in Eastern Ukraine, Southern Russia. And so um, the Russia, Russians didn't really want to move in large numbers and so Jewish leaders, um, led by the al and a number of others, um, encouraged the Russian government, well, if you're looking to Russify them, why don't you get Jews to move there? Jews were very crowded in the Pale of Settlement. They weren't allowed to move into Russia proper. And so the Russian government allowed Jews to move to eastern Ukraine and southern Russia, certain areas they were allowed to move to uh, and develop um, villages. And so um, the al would ra- raised a lot of money um, and worked hard to... Um, settled Jews in what was called the Kherson at the time, which was um, a region east in Ukraine where they would build Jewish villages um, and give Jews tracts of land to farm um, and develop Jewish farming in order for Jews in order to give Jews other opportunities outside of the very crowded pale of settlements. He was also involved in, uh, the Altair was also very involved um, in this movement and later his um, son and his grandson were later involved in this as well in this movement to help move Jews out of the Crowded Pale of Settlement and give them um, plots of land um, in other areas that the czars were granting, um, land, uh, land grants at the time. Um, so anyway, going back to the, the, um, the French invasion. So when Napoleon invaded, um, uh, invaded Russia, most of the war took place in um, an area that was part of the Pale of Settlement. Um, particularly the original invasion was from um, what was at the time um, Prussia, which was northern Europe, and, um, and it went straight into what today is Lithuania and Belarus. And so, um, a lot of the early, and so a lot of the early battles were in that area around Vilna um, and further into Belarus. Um, now the Jewish community at the time were really split over their loyalties. Historically, we, when we lived in a country that went to war, Historically, Jews always supported their local government because um, Jeremiah, before going to exile, instructed the Jews, wherever you go, seek out the welfare of the country that you live in. You always have to be loyal to your own country. So Jews generally were loyal to their own government, wherever they lived, as a rule. Often Jews fought in, in wars um, on sides of their own government. Um, in the Russian army at the time, Jews were not allowed to fight. Um, Jews were banned from the Russian army. Later they'd be forced into the Russian army. Uh, we got it on all sides, but, uh, uh, but Jews generally would be faithful to their, the country they were from. However, czarist Russia was extremely anti-Semitic. There were limits on where Jews could live, on the professions they can go into. They weren't allowed to live in most of the big cities. Um, they weren't allowed to live in. Um, there, were, uh, there was a lot of persecution or government organized pogroms um, and so there, there were many many very high Jewish taxes and there were many many reasons why the Jews hated the czar and hated that as you uh, learned from um, Fiddler on the Roof right the Jews all hated the czar and the, the czar is the government. Now Napoleon um, though a dictator totalitarian dictator um, and a tyrant um, he believed in the at least the French values of freedom Um, and allowed at least freedom of religion, allowed for free practice, and allowed for citizen, gave citizenship to Jews in France for the first time, and emancipation to Jews, and believed that all people should be emancipated, including Jews. So um, many Jews across Europe welcomed Napoleon um, because it led to emancipation. In fact, wherever Napoleon came to Italy, to Germany, uh, wherever he came, he emancipated the Jews. And so Jews in Russia were looking forward to a uh, French win in this war because they had been suffering under the czar and they many looked forward to emancipation. And so there were many Jews who secretly supported the French um, and the French largely considered Jews on their side. However, not all Jews did support the French and particularly many of the religious leaders did not support the French for a number of reasons. Firstly, Jewish values require us to support our own government, even if they're not good to us, um, even if the enemy might be better for us, um, we Jews must be loyal to our own government. So first and foremost, we're expected to be loyal. But also there was a great fear of Napoleon among Jews. And that's because while Napoleon had emancipated Jews uh, across Europe, Napoleon also controlled, and um, for that matter, he allowed for all people to be equal citizens, all subjects to be equal citizens, and um, allowed for anyone to go into any profession they wished and do anything they wanted. Um, However, Napoleon was also very much a, um, in the spirit of the French Revolution, very much anti-religion. And more importantly, he believed in government control of religion. And this was true both for the Catholic Church in France, which France still today has a unique relationship with the Catholic Church, where it's under the control of the government um, rather than the Vatican. Um, But it was also true for Jews. And Napoleon insisted to the Jewish community in France that they create a Supreme Council that he wanted to call Sanhedrin after the original Supreme Council that Jews had that had been disbanded some 1800 years ago. Um, and so he uh, he insists they create a Supreme Council. And then he had a number of rules that he wanted the Supreme Council to make. And as the emperor, he was going to tell, just as he could tell the Catholics how to practice Catholicism and tell Protestants how to pra- practice Protestantism, he believed that, they, that he, as the emperor, would tell the Jews how to practice Judaism. And so among the rules that he, re- he forced the Sanhedrin to make was to um, remove any ban on Jews mar- intermarrying, marrying non-Jews, because he believed everybody should be equal, um, and many other bans um, against Jews refusing to um, work um, on, Shab- on festivals or Shabbat, and other bans that he thought, he changed other rules that he thought were not in the spirit of the French Revolution. And so while he allowed for emancipation and freedom of theoretical um, uh, freedom of all people and equal citizenship for all people, at the same time, he also believed in government controlled religion. And he believed that he was gonna dictate, and he did in the places where he controlled, he dictated to each religion what they do. Uh, Jews were somewhat resistant um, and as a result, he was somewhat, um, they, in, in areas that he controlled, Jewish community suffered from him somewhat, um, and struggled with him somewhat, um, with Napoleon and his edicts for the Jewish community. Um, and so, as a result, many Jewish leaders in Russia were afraid, knowing that Napoleon was um, believed in controlling religion, were afraid of Napoleon's conquest of Russia. Because they didn't want Napoleon to dictate how Judaism should be, and so as a result, the Alter Rebbe um, believed was a strong supporter of the Tsar, and he believed that um, a, a French victory would be a disaster for um, would be a disaster for the Jewish community in 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 Russia. And so therefore, he encouraged his followers to actively aid the Tsarist government. Um, included in that, he secretly sent to a number of his followers who were in areas of Russia that had already been captured once the war began, that had been captured early on by Napoleon to volunteer for the, um, uh, to help the French. The French largely tra- believed that Jews were on their side. Um, many Jews spoke French because Jews tended to be international. Uh, there were many Jewish business people that would travel around Europe and spoke French. And so uh, many Jews, uh, many of his followers volunteered with the French as translators or in other positions. And um, from there, they would secretly pass information as spies, um, uh, secretly passing information to the Russians, helping the Russian war effort. Uh, when the al was pretty public about his position um, against the French and the support for the Russian government. Uh, for the Tsar. And so, um, as a result, um, when the French army approached the town where he lived, Liadi, he um, was encouraged by the um, by the Russian generals, Um, he was for he had to flee um, because he knew that he would be um, certainly arrested as a um, uh, if he were, if if he would fall into French hands. And so he fled um, he fled in the summer of 1812. and late summer, he fled um, and left Liadi um, ahead of the um, ahead of the French army. Um, continued to move because the French army moved pretty quickly. They reached Moscow um, by the winter of 1812, and so um, uh, and so he fl- uh, he fled deep into Russia, and um, there um, while he was. Um, while he was deep in Russia far away from any Jewish community there he um, got sick and uh, he passed away on the 24th of the month of Hebet in 5573 or the 27th of December in 1812 and so he was at the time he was in a very small village called Piana which was in um, deep in Rus- deep into Russia um, where he had fled um, and um, he was taken to um, some distance to the closest um, to the closest Jewish community to be buried um, in a town called Hadich, which is in eastern Ukraine, and um, and he was buried over there um, in Hadich um, in eastern Ukraine, and so he left behind the Alter his legacy that he leaves behind for us, um, the Chabad movement that he had founded, the uh, his teachings, both his most importantly his book of Tanya. The philosophy that he had developed, that had since been developed um, in the 200 years since, um, had been developed um, throughout uh, and uh, has really built into a very, um, into a very expansive philosophy with hundreds of books written on Hasidism or the Hasidic under, uh, teachings of Kabbalah, which really simplify Kabbalah so that we can all understand it while explaining the basic um, ideas of Hasidism. And uh, he also left the legacy of his um, Torah teachings, uh, his Shulchan Aruch, his code of law, um, his Torah teachings, um, and his son later continued to lead the movement and uh, successors, um, and really le- leaves for us today um, quite a legacy of Chabad and his many teachings. So tomorrow's gonna be his birthday. Um, and so it's really a time to celebrate the Altarebi and his teachings. So I thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will continue, God willing, next week. I'll open up to questions in just a moment.